Thanks for that. It's been good to be uh, together this morning as we round out our little mini part during the holidays, working our way through Matthew 11 and 12. Have you ever had someone who had it in for you? Who looked for any opportunity to get you? And I'm, and I'm saying it seriously. And I think for those that have probably been around long enough, there will be a story or a circumstance in their life where someone or some group had it in for them. For me, it was uh, year nine at Sandgate High School. I was a little tyke then. And there's 1,200 students at Sandgate. Grade nine, you're still pretty well at the bottom end of the pecking order. I wasn't overly assertive. I was fairly quiet, fairly shy. I was a Christian in a fairly challenging space. But I had a couple of year 10s that had it in for me. Interesting when education has fear as a component of it. The challenge was that whenever they spotted me, and it would have been any number of other students that they would have picked on or whatever like that, they went out of their way to make life miserable. I'll let you in a little secret. Probably a funny thing to be saying from the pulpit. But while I was at school, I didn't go to the toilet. That was a fearful space to head into the boys' toilets. The smoke was wafting out of the louvers. And the toughies hung around in the toilets. Unbelievable when you think about it. And they had a little practice there. They used to grab unsuspecting students drag them in and would f- try and flush their head in the toilet. And for whatever reason it was, I walked past the boys' toilets as they were coming out and they grabbed me. And they grabbed me in and took me, dragged me in and I thought it's going to happen. I hope it's flushed. <laughs> and I just remember praying, Lord, help me. And there and then, those group of tough, thought they were tough, year 10 boys, they just stopped and they just walked out of the toilets. And I'm just left standing there. And I just thought, oh, I think I've seen a miracle. (laughs) They're hard places to be when someone has it in for you. And I realise in a group like this, that could be a very diverse type of story. And our normal human response is to fight, on one hand, or flight, retaliate, run away, but it just brings out all sorts of emotions. Last week we finished on Matthew 12, verse 14, where now the Pharisees are now plotting how they may kill Jesus really is a pivot verse in the trajectory of Jesus' life and ministry. And in a sense, the cross is now starting to come into view. There's a shadow that has been cast over the storyline, as it were, as it unfolds. And the Pharisees now 
had it in for Jesus. Everything he said, everything he did was under intense scrutiny and they were going out of their way to make it happen. In, in, a psychological, in the psychology, um, um, they, they have an expression uh, among psychologists and so on, it's called confirmation bias. And people will ignore things that don't agree with their preconceived ideas and will interpret ambiguous information as supportive to their beliefs. We all actually, we all have confirmation bias. We all wrestle with it in some way where we have preset uh, ideas. And it's not necessarily negative, but in this case with the Pharisees, it was negative because they had their preconceived ideas and anything that was said and done would feed into the story that they were uh, in terms of out looking to get him. This week we'll be looking at Matthew 12, 15 to 30, and I think we've read that uh, through this morning. First you will see that Jesus, Jesus knows that the Pharisees are plotting to kill him because it, uh, it said that previously, uh, but he continues to show compassion, understanding, goodness, grace and justice knowing that they're out to get him. You see, Jesus was different from us in a sense that if I knew someone was out to get me, I'd be trying to put something in place. But he didn't. He took certainly some caution, and we'll look at a little bit of that uh, this morning. Uh, but here he is on mission, continuing going about what he's doing. Secondly, we'll consider the Pharisees pulling off one of their most disturbing accusations against Jesus. As Jesus then calmly and logically destroys their argument. Finally, Jesus gives, it a, gives us a challenge that you're either for me or you're against me in terms of responding to him. Well, from here on, uh, and as we continue through Matthew, and uh, but we'll finish up today because next week we'll head into our series on 1st, 2nd and 3rd John. But hang on for the ride because it's going to get bumpy for those who had it in for Jesus Okay, verse 14 where we finished up last week, but the Pharisees went out and they plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill and he warned them not to tell others about him. Aware of this, aware of this plot. Now I would imagine, I'm imagining this plot was being done in secret. They went away to work out how they could kill Jesus. But Jesus was aware of that. And in a sense, you know, in his communion with God, put it on his heart or whatever like that, he was aware of their plot. A message says, knowing they were out to get him. And they were. Uh, the New Living Translation says, Jesus knew what they were planning. The plotting's in private, but Jesus knew it. And we'll head down to verse 25 uh, shortly and we'll see uh, that he also, again, knew their thoughts. But this explains a little bit of his identity. He knew what was going on. And it says here that he withdrew. But he's not withdrawing in terms of retreating or whatever like that. He moves himself out of the synagogue and the city, which Mark chapter 3 says, moved away from that back down to the lake again. Why? Why did he do that? Imagine if he told the crowds that the Pharisees were plotting to kill him. Then he was at risk of the crowd taking things into their own hands. Interesting also that he didn't withdraw out of fear. 
And I get that. You know, when someone's out after you to get you, there is, there is a fear uh, component of that. He was actually still on God's schedule. He was not on man's schedule. It was not yet the time that he was suffer, and he didn't want it to get out of hand by an unruly crowd that would try and deal with something uh, on their own terms. So he's just, he's, he's just managing the situation. So he gets it out of that hotbed of the, the synagogue and the city and so on, moves off down to the lake. But look what it says there, he's still healing all. Despite those that are out to get him, Jesus stayed on mission and he didn't retaliate. He's on mission in terms of his grace and his goodness and his healing uh, to people there. Um, It didn't distract him from that, even though he was aware they were out to get him. But he did warn them. He warned them not to tell others about that. And often, a number of times, he says this. Why? Firstly, he didn't want any unnecessary public glory. He didn't want to be bringing too much attention to what was happening. He was just going about his mission. But he also didn't want to provoke his enemies anymore and fall into their hands prematurely. We know where this story uh, is going, but at any point there could have been an intervention there and he knowing what was happening and knowing that he was on God's schedule, knowing that the cross was in front of him, continued uh, on that path, he continued on mission and so on, uh, but made arrangements to make sure there wasn't any premature uh, um, action by the crowd or his enemies. Look at these verses in 1721, uh, 17 to 21. I talked, uh, um, I talked two weeks ago about um, connecting the dots. Matthew has connected the dots here. He's getting the Old Testament and he now understands it in the context of Jesus. And he said, and this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I've chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory and in his, na- in his name the nations will put their hope. What a magnificent verse there, verse 21. We'll come to that shortly. But this was to fulfil, this was to fulfil what had been said previously. You see, these verses were written by Isaiah some 700 years beforehand. And they form a part of 300 prophecies about Jesus. Now, I know in a group like this, we'd have those who are mathematically inclined and we've got those who may be not so mathematically inclined. But there's something spectacular happens here in terms of the word of God and what we have access to. You see, these things were said between 1,000 years beforehand and 700 years beforehand Uh, uh, 700, 600, 500 years beforehand, these prophecies were made about Jesus. Now think about it. 27, 23. Have I got that right? Am I doing my maths right there? Is that 700 years from now? Imagine something being said that I could speak into that time 700 years down the track and that that was recorded. 700 years out. If you want to put some odds on this, and these are verses that applied specifically to Jesus, to fulfil eight of those prophecies, eight of them, the chances of that happening is one by 10 to the 17. So that means you get one 
and add 17 zeros, you've got better odds on the lotto. Much better odds. That's just eight of them. But 300 of these prophecies come, uh, came into being in terms of uh, Jesus himself. This was to fulfil. Matthew got that. He saw these verses back, set in Isaiah 700 years beforehand, and these were being fulfilled right now. Uh, we'll notice that it says there uh, that, it put, that it says it will put my spirit on him. That's uh, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61 use this same expression. You see, God's, the Holy Spirit was on Jesus and this is what was prophesied, how that you would even recognise the Messiah. His spirit was upon him. It's really important to note that because in the next few verses, something quite the opposite is going to occur. And look what it says there. In verse 21, the nations will put their hope. The NLT says the hope of all the world. Uh, the New King James says, and in his name the Gentiles will trust. This is really significant because up till now, Jesus had been sending the disciples out to the Jewish people. And for the first time now, Jesus now mentions there's a broader scope to God's plan and it was going to include the nations. It was going to include the Gentiles. In fact, back in Genesis chapter 12, he made that promise uh, to Abraham that through him all nations, all families of the earth will be blessed. You and I are part of the blessing of that promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, but part of the fulfilment there in verse 21. In his name the nations will put their hope. Now I guess the question there this morning is, do you have that hope? As our culture that we live in jettisons its historical and its moral anchors and it drifts off into an ocean of relativity where, as Judges says, every man does what is right in their own eyes. I'll tell you what happens. Hope becomes an illusion. And Jesus gives an invitation that we've looked at three weeks ago. Finn looked at it. He unpacked John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. It's an invitation. And Jesus says, I am the way. He says, I am the truth. And I am the life. And in him, we will find this firm foundation. We will find this hope. We've been singing about it this morning. This hope sits in Jesus. Jesus is the way to God. He is the only way. He bridges the gulf between God and man because of the sin that's between us. Jesus not only communicated God's truth, but he is truth. And Jesus came as life to defeat the power of death. That's what happened at the cross and restore eternal life. The hope of the nations, what is the, who is, Jesus is this hope of the nations, but he offers a restored relationship with God, a knowledge of what really is true and a life that will never end. Do you know what? That is hope. We are all chasing or following something. Part of our human nature, God has put in, in, in our very being is to look for things outside of ourselves, for meaning, for understanding. It will not be found in anyone else or anything else other than in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we looked at that, as I said, uh, a few weeks ago. Look at verse 22. They brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. And all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Wow. The understanding there is this man was demonised. He was full of the demonic and he was blind and mute. 
That's hellish. It really is. And the sequence there would indicate that because he was demonic, that was probably the reason for his blindness and unable to speak. What a hellish condition to be in to be full of demonic beings and blind and unable to communicate. And Jesus comes along and does a double healing, as it were, cast out the demons and, could, and then restored his, both his talk uh, and his sight. Incredible. We're now getting a little curtain pulled back uh, on, uh, on a spiritual world. And look at, the, look at the response of the crowd. It says that they were astonished. They were amazed. They could see what had happened there before him. And then they asked this incredible question. Could this be the son of David? The crowd, in fact, are joining the dots. Could this be the promised one that we've been waiting for? Do you know what? That's the right conclusion. In terms of Jesus and mission and ministry, that's the sort of conclusion that they should have been making. Could this be the son of David? Israel's waiting for him. These miracles are authenticating his identity. Could this be? Could this be the one that we've been waiting for? The dots were starting to be joined. But I tell you what, if this was a movie, you would actually now cue the foreboding music and the scene would darken. Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, by the prince of the demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Notice the contrast between the crowd's response and the Pharisees. How do you get two vastly different responses from the same event? Could this be? Then they make this horrendous accusation. As an 18-year-old, I came out of the church where I grew up and we'd had a visiting speaker from England speak. And I became a Christian when I was about 10 or 11 down at CYC Burley Camp. And I've been raised in a Christian home and so on. But I came out of that message under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. As an 18-year-old, I was become aware of my sin and my fallenness and what Jesus had done for me. Within my Christian home context, you know, there was a sense that, that I hadn't gone out and rebelled or anything like that. Maybe even a sense that I was okay. But I came out of that meeting, I believe, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Not that I become a Christian at that point, but there was a real sense of my position before God. And as I stepped out onto the front landing of that church, I can still hear to this day very clearly two older ladies standing off to the side of me that said to those saying to themselves, How dare he speak to us like that? And I was just staggered. Because I walked out of there under a real sense of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and they walked out of there saying, How dare he speak to us like that? How can you get such different responses to when the word of God is being communicated? Well, we have it right here. And I think what you've got to understand, and we can't sort of hear it just in our English words, we can't hear it just in the, in the written word as well, but this is sent, said with such contempt. And if you could imagine the drawback and a spit, as it were, of contempt, and they say, this fellow... In fact, they're saying, this vile man, 
They couldn't deny the miracle. They couldn't do it. It happened right there in front of them. But to bring Jesus into contempt with the crowd and to bring down this issue they had, could this be the son of David? They scorned him in the worst possible way as to the source of Jesus' power coming from Satan itself. Bezalbal, that accused him, starts in 2 Kings 1 with Baal Zebub the God of Ekron, who Ahaziah, the king of Israel, attempted to consult. By Jesus' time, though, it was a scorning, slang variation for Satan himself. And it actually means Lord of the Flies. Or even worse still, I don't even want to spend too much time on this. Lord of the Dung Heap. Jesus is in league with the devil. That's what they're saying. Chuck Swindle says, or he's a pawn of Satan. The offence is terrible. The scorn is blasphemous. Jesus then goes down to connect that into verse 31 where we won't be heading to today in terms of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I remember a time growing up, there was some artwork, there was a movie and so on like that, but it was so blasphemous. I won't even describe it from here. How much worse to have Emmanuel... God with us being described as a pawn of Satan. But look at verse 25. Jesus knew their thoughts. I often think about that. Jesus knew their thoughts. Boy, I'm probably glad as a teacher I don't have that ability. <laughs> Imagine standing in your class there and, well, I don't know what you're thinking. Yep, I'll be finished soon. Jesus knew their thoughts. Again, his identity coming through there. He has that ability to do that. And he now runs through three defences, and I'll look at them quickly. He said, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How can this king, how can, then can his kingdom stand? You see, sometimes Jesus responded to the accusation, sometimes he let them ride. On this one, he starts to demolish their accusation clearly, logically, one by one. So here's defence number one. As he begins to unravel their twisted, blasphemous accusation with a simple but sharp logic. How can a kingdom be divided itself? How can a family be divided itself? How can a city be divided itself? It's civil war. We've seen that up in terms of you know, the Wagner group in Russia and that sort of stuff. How, how, if that fighting starts to happen within, it'll destroy, it has the potential to destroy the place. And Jesus said, how can you make that accusation? How can Satan be, as it were, running his kingdom? And then I'm a part of that, bringing it down. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I drive out the demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Who do your people? They have their own exorcists. The Pharisees had their own exorcists and that sort of stuff there. Um, your people, your associates, your disciples, how do they cast them out when they do it? Can't have two sources coming up with this one. We know if you go across to Acts 19, the seven sons of Sheba, they were Jewish exorcists. The demons acknowledged Paul and Jesus, but they didn't know them. Uh, they, they, the demons acknowledged Paul and Jesus, but the demons said that they didn't know who these exorcists were. They underestimated both the power of Satan and of Jesus. But look at this, Jesus says, if it's by the Spirit of God that this has happened, then the kingdom that John had spoken of has now arrived. The implications of this were so significant. 
Verse 29, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possession unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder the house? Third defence, in terms of why Jesus says he cannot be operating under the accusation that they made. The strong man's house. To be clear, and I think I just need to just sort of make these few comments, this is not a battle between good and evil. This is not a battle between the Eastern thought of yin and yang or the dualism of equal good versus equal evil. This is a battle of strong and stronger. You see, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Revelation talk about Lucifer, the devil, Satan. He was a created occupant of heaven and he was cast down. This is a battle uh, that sits out there, currently still sits out there, by one who is not as strong as. It's not an equal battle that is taking place. And we're seeing it being confronted here in this passage. Matthew 16, 18 says, when Peter declared who Jesus was, he says, I will tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. This is not an equal power play battle that is taking place. 1 John 4, 4 says, you dear children are from God. You have overcome the one who is in you because greater than the one, greater, uh, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And as Jesus' ministry and mission becomes more and more obvious, the opposition is now significantly pushing back. The curtain has been pulled back on the supernatural where the kingdom of God, the gospel, is at war against Satan's rule. A little expression ties up the, son, the, ties up the man, the binding of Satan. What can we see out of that? Well, Jesus' public ministry is the stronger man. We would see the demonic bound from time to time when he would cast them out. And this man was released from this demonic grip. But we will come to Jesus' death and resurrection and uh, uh, where we'll see uh, Satan and the guarantee of the binding of Satan, particularly dealing with, with death itself, being dealt with. Colossians 2.15 says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, trying, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, the cross uh, dealt with death. And in dealing uh, with the uh, death, burial, resurrection and ascension of Jesus, we now have the guarantee that one day he will be finally dealt with. Then head across to Revelation 20, we'll have the thousand-year reign when uh, Satan will be bound for a time and then finally cast into the lake of fire in Revelation 20, verse 7. And until those last two take place, we still live in the effects of the fall and Satan's influence on, in the world, but it still sits under God's authority. And then finally, that last verse, whoever is not with me is against me, whoever does not gather with me scatters. You see, actually, with these Pharisees, Jesus draws a line in the sand. You're either for me or you're against me. Our human nature doesn't like lines in the sand moments. We've got one coming up. It's called a referendum. We don't like doing the yes or the no. We don't like being for the for or against. We don't like that. We want some middle ground. We want some movement there. But we can't do that here in this, in this, in this space. Joshua did the same with Israel in Joshua 24. He says, choose this day who you will serve. But for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. Drew a line in the sand. Think of all these people in proximity to Jesus. They'd seen the power. 
They'd experienced it in a real and tangible way, yet they lacked the faith to follow him. Some had experienced it in their own lives. They were healed. You see, following Jesus demands a response. Maybe you've lived and walked in proximity with Christians. You've seen God work in their lives, answer their prayers and so on, but have never responded to Jesus' call on your life. Why? It may it may not, it, may be the, it won't be the fear of the Pharisees and so on, which I think was part of the, the issues that the crowd had to deal with there, but it may be a family friend, a family member or a friend. I asked a year 10 class one time why they were not a Christian and one of them said, I'm actually afraid how my family will respond. Or maybe it's just indifference. We live in a culture of indifference, a lack of interest or enthusiasm. But here's the thing, Jesus calls all people to repentance. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2, today, now, is the day of salvation. Last Friday, I went and visited Pauline in the hospital and she'd broken her arm following the car accident. And she just said, I'm, just, I'm thankful, David, I'm thankful it could have been an awful lot worse. And she's right, it could have been an awful lot worse in terms of who it impacted and that sort of stuff there. I drove out of the hospital, drove up Anzac Avenue and I passed that tragic accident there at Kippen Ring where a 72-year-old woman and her adult daughter had been cleaned up by a stolen car. And I just thought, wow, how quickly life can change. It's not about putting this decision off to a point in the future because you cannot guarantee that point in the future. Helen, uh, um, Pauline was fortunate and she was thankful to God in terms of the outcome of her accident. But that other accident was just tragic. It was terrible. They're just going about their business and gone. Jesus calls us to repentance. We need to respond. We need to respond to him. And as I said before there, that proximity sits out there. We have people even here that have been connected or whatever, but they're just, you might be just journeying along. Well, I'd like to put the challenge out to you this morning. This Jesus who is the hope of the nations is the one that calls us to follow him, to trust him because he is the way, the truth and the life. But it demands a response of faith. And I would invite you this morning you could be a, a young person of you, or your parents grown up in a Christian home, but you've never made that decision and never made that call. Well, today is the day to be able to do that. I'd like to be able to offer you that invitation. And it can be done straight after church here and say, do you know what? I haven't responded to Jesus. I've been in proximity. I've seen it all. I've experienced it. But today could be the day, and I'd like to offer you that invitation. Big idea, despite the opposition to the kingdom of God, over two millennia, 2,000 years, Jesus' invitation to follow him still stands because he alone is the hope of the nations. And I would invite you that if you haven't made that decision to follow him by faith, then let's do it. Let's do it this morning. Let me pray. Lord, we come before you this morning and have, in a sense, the curtain of the supernatural drawn slightly. And there's a battle that rages. But Lord, it's a battle that's been won. And it was won at the cross. And Satan was defeated. 
And whilst his effect in the fall and so on is still upon us, one day in the future he will be dealt with permanently. But in the meantime, Lord, each of us have a calling on our lives to follow you, to accept you as our saviour, to repent of the things that we've done wrong and to acknowledge you as the one who is the way, the truth and the, the life. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit this morning may move in somebody's heart who, hasn't, who may have been in proximity even to this group or their family, whoever it might be, and has not made that commitment to follow you. Because that's the call. It's an invitation that you've given to us to follow you. Not as a crowd that just goes here, there and every way, but as a, as, as a person who loves you and commits their life to you. And Lord, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.